Hello everyone, it's David Oakes here. A quick cold intro for this episode, as it's a deviation from this season's standard tree format. This is a bonus episode, an old-school Trees of Crowd-style interview, you lucky people. One which was recorded almost a whole year ago now, back when I thought things might be returning to, inverted commas, normal. They did not. Anyway, this was recorded, sheltered from a rainy December morning in 2020, socially distanced and with the French windows akimbo looking out upon the divine Dorset countryside. You heard her earlier in the week talking about decapitated bees within the episode on the lime trees. But this is my interview with the humble bumble herself, Bridget Strawbridge Howard. I think she's wonderful, but I'll leave it to you to make up your own minds. So without further ado... Over to Bridget. You know, my book took me ten years to write because I can't spell. So, <laughs> so just know that um, I'm so very not unworldly. I'm, unworldly. I'm, I'm not an anything. I'm unworldly. I'm not a specialist. I have no ologies. So, yeah. so why am I here? <laughs> no, no. Oh. In the depth of the forest, an old oak grew, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Whether collecting conkers from trees or simply bonkers about bees, I get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, I'm in Dorset to talk to bee advocate, wildlife gardener, naturalist and recent Wainwright Prize nominee Bridget Strawbridge Howard. Bridget campaigns furiously to raise awareness for the threats to our planet's biodiversity, in particular for the importance of native wild bees. This has taken the form of writing a book, being an unapologetic champion of social media, being the focus of a BBC reality TV show and even buying a second-hand double-decker bus in Swindon with the hopes of taking green thinking on the road. Bridget, hello and welcome to Trees of Crowd. Oh, hello, David. I'm really impressed that you know about the double-decker bus. Well, well let's start with the double-decker bus. Um, where is it? Like, I was expecting to see oh, it in the drive. Well, no, no, that's a long time ago. Um, so, yeah, it was 10, 12 years ago I set up a... Um, an environmental charity with um, some friends basically to dispel the myth that it's difficult to be green and my, my idea was that if I if I could convert an mm. old double-decker bus then I could take it to city centres and schools and uh, you know wherever um, open it up to the public and it would be irresistible to people who might previously not have shown any interest in um, solar power or uh, gentle, nature-loving skin products or permacultural composting. Sure. So that, that's that's what, what it was about. And for a year and a half, two years, it was wonderful, it was fantastic, but it became all-consuming and um, vehicles are a nightmare. And every, especially every, if there are second-hand buses in Sweden. Especially if there are second-hand buses in Sweden. And I used to wake up every morning. Uh, my waking thought was fear. Oh, gosh, how am I going to get a driver for this weekend's gig? <laughs> Or will it break down again, which it did sure. occasionally. And cut a long story short, um, I I closed the charity, and that was terribly sad, and gave what was left in the bank to the Bumblebee Conservation Trust, which was okay. had set up at the same time as, as this charity. Did and they also do it in a double-decker bus? They didn't do it in a double-decker Yeah, and they've been extremely successful, I'm pleased to say. 
and I gave the bus to the Eden Project where it was used for a year or two and I've seen the bus recently. Going around town? Uh, in, no, <laughs> in a field, it's just lovely, in a field um, just outside the village of Tired Reth, which is where I used to live in Cornwall, uh -huh. and it's lived in. Um, you know, it has a wood burner in it, it's in a field, oh, wow. and I love that it's ended up. Do you know who that. it is, isn't it? I have communicated with them, and one day I'm going to go and knock on the door and say, Can I have a look and see? Is what it going to be like when you buy a house from someone else and they come back around to see what you've done and they're like, Oh, you, you got rid of that, that door? We spent a lot of effort thinking about that door. You'll yeah. be there having chosen all yeah. the different floor plates, all the light fixtures, everything else yeah. to try and make it green. Oh, you got rid of a, got rid of the solar panel on the top there. Yeah, okay. I yeah. reckon it will, but mostly <laughs> I just love that it's um, not in a graveyard. You know, mm. it's not in an old bus graveyard, it's being loved and lived in. So we've mentioned bees already. I was going to try and wait for at least 25 minutes before I got into bees, because I imagine you talk about bees quite a lot, and, and rightfully so. Yeah. So we're going to leave we're going to leave bees on the back burner. Okay. On the metaphorical back burner, not obviously on a real cooker. That would be really bad. <laughs> um, so just before I press record, we were talking a bit about how you don't consider yourself an expert. You didn't finish school. Mm. I guess my question is, what's the difference between an amateur naturalist and a professional naturalist? And do you consider yourself either of those two things? Okay, that's a good question actually. It's a big question to start it, with. It is big and I have thought about this because when people use the word naturalist um, I want to put my hand up and say, oh, amateur, amateur. Because I have no qualifications, I'm not a professional and I don't think I, I consider myself amateur. I, I am a citizen scientist mm -hmm. and I love what I do with a passion. I learn from the professionals, from the, the, the say the real naturalist, you know, they're no more real people than I am, um, but yeah, my, mine is, I kind of feel comfortable chatting um, to people like me sure. about bees, or like the person I used to be, be before I knew anything about mm -hmm. the natural world. So at what point does, do you stop being a conduit for scientific fact, which your book very definitely is? Yeah. Like, wh wh how, how do, you, do you have to have a professional qualification? Well, um, it's... I mean, that's, there's so many people yeah. in the world right now writing books or doing natural... Green, green is cool. Yes. Now, finally, yes. green Thank is cool. Thank goodness. Um, it's interesting because when I, I used to... So I've been talking about, about native wild bees for many years, for about 10 years or so. And when I first started doing this, I became very aware that there are certain charities who would like to have booked me, who couldn't because their funders, when, when they were... Um, saying so what's the qualification of this person mm -hmm. needed um, scientific qualifications and I didn't fall into that sure. bracket so I was left out in the cold and I was so frustrated for, for for many years that I had no qualifications but what I've done over the years is I've worked really really carefully to make sure that anything that I pass on um, whether it's via social media or in my book or mm -hmm. at my talks is correct so I do an awful lot of research. I have, I have spent hours and hours and hours um, reading scientific papers that, you know, five years ago would have been psh, mm. straight over my head. And I have to look up a lot of the words in them and in other people's, in nature writers' books. Sure. You know, I, and then I try and um, pass that on to people in a way that... Makes it accessible. Yeah, a way that they can understand. It sounds very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> um, at what point does nature start to figure largely, is it from a childhood age or? 
Well, when I was a child, um, it was um, very important to me. And we were chatting earlier about your childhood, you know, mm -hmm. you were brought up with nature all around you yeah. and with parents who, um, who appreciated, who, who appreciated it, it yeah. and, and introduced you to the natural world. Mine didn't. Nobody in my family was even remotely interested um, in, in the natural world. I was, and I was quite badly bullied at school, so, so nature was my refuge. Um, I didn't know it at the time and and it was only in my teens I don't there was literally there was a night I went to boarding school I went to a convent up in Yorkshire okay um, I almost slipped back into my Yorkshire accent That's all right. so I went to so university in Manchester sometimes I pretend to have a flat O sound just so I don't get oh. beaten up <laughs> wow I, well all my friends were day girls um, okay. because I didn't get on with the boarders I was a bit of a, sure. a weedy little wuss and a bit of an inky swat as well and, and <laughs> just not at all popular or liked so because I was so badly bullied, I, I'd, um, I was just happier being on my own outside. Uh -huh. And then when I was about, so say I was about 12, there was one night in, in one of the dormitories, I've forgotten about this, and uh, they, you know, people were telling jokes, the girls were telling jokes after lights out, and I dared to, I had one, and I, I said it, because we were all in our little separate cubicles, a very, mm -hmm. very weird world, um, and I said my joke and everybody laughed. And I kid you not, the next day, I was okay. I was okay for friends. I was not. I was never popular, but I stopped being bullied. And I reckon that is when I. It's an awful thing because I stopped needing um, nature to, to to be my friend. Mm -hmm. I kind of maybe closed the door on it, not deliberately. Um, a little bit like you would, um, you know, if you had a, a friend. Sure. Um, who you closed the door on, something like that. And then it was only really, uh, oh, many years later when my marriage was breaking up, um, that I took to the hills. I was living in Malvern at the time, on the Malvern Hills. I don't know if you know them. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And and I took to walking, stomping, just to try and get my sadness sure. um, out of me. And Been there, done that. Uh, yeah, have you? Well, yeah. it, it's, it's cathartic, but also... I started to slow down and, and I started to notice things around me again and also had a eureka moment when I suddenly realised I didn't know what the things around me were, sure. uh, you know, what they were called or what was going on. So, so that was my, my comeback. But during, during my years as a mother of small children, uh, at least 60-70% of the books I bought my children were books about the natural world. Um, right. I, I wanted um, to share what I'd had as a child in, in my own little head with them and it must have been incredibly important to me but strangely I didn't, I wasn't connected, I don't, I don't know, I look back at this often and think what was going on there um, that you know, I was giving my children all these beautiful books. Are we talking like sort of anthropomorphic, like Beatrix Pottery kind of things? No, no, no. Books about so children's um, scientific. Like Osborne guides. Um, all, the, all the Osborne guides. Sure, okay. um, everything. And my son in particular lapped it up, and he would, I, I could tell you know, I'd put him to bed at night time, James, and uh, close um, the door, turn the lights off, and I could tell, I could see the torch hmm. <laughs> underneath the door. And he'd be reading these books and learning uh, by himself from the books. Very, very interesting. He collected skulls and bones and feathers and 
things like that. Wherever we went for a walk, that's what he collected. So and you're in the Mulverns at this point. This this yeah. oh, my ex-husband was in the armed forces, so oh, we okay. were everywhere. Wherever we went, um, James collected things and put them on his windowsill. Was there something about? I mean, I've got family here in the forces and moved around a lot. The exposure that you get to the world as a result of that is quite amazing. Like my cousins, their, their fathers in in the RAF, and they've lived in Cyprus, where the the flora is incredible. They've lived in Australia for a number of years, and without even thinking about it, they've been exposed to all of these different habitats, which they find amazing. Well, we weren't as fortunate as that. We didn't live all over the world, but we did live a lot in Germany. And at one stage, we lived our back garden backed onto. Thought, it, thought of it as a forest at the time, but it was woodland, and it, it was fantastic. You know, we saw the sort of wild animals that you don't see. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't have a sea boar, but uh, 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 we saw deer. We knew there was some boar there. This was in the um, on the Dutch-German border, and birds, woodland birds as well. So, but no, nothing, nothing exotic. Sure, nothing exotic. I would argue that everything's exotic and yeah. everything's exciting. You just need to find a way. Oh, it's to... all exciting. Yeah, <laughs> it's all exciting. I think when I think. When I say exotic, I I um, think um, very very far away creatures, yeah. Rather than although I think if if I were to be to go deeper, I'd say swallowtail butterflies flies are my oh yeah, they're bonkers. Uh, so exotic. They look like they should be um, like in a rainforest in the tropics somewhere. Or that's it. I oh, I the problem is my first reference with swallowtail butterflies is um, uh, Grace Jones in View to a Kill, where she kills Ooh. the yeah. So I think oh, no. of them as a murdering. Device. Oh, that's, my, that's mine is, is from my mother's um, Brookborn tea cards when I was uh, little. Okay. Um, and when I was little, we lived on the Malvins as well, because um, my father was in the army. Sure. So we moved around a lot. And I've wanted to see a swallowtail butterfly and a Camberwell beauty ever mm -hmm. since I was. So I would have been about eight, nine, ten. Um, still never seen them. Well, there's something to do in the next book. I know. My father used to collect butterflies and he'd, he'd gas them and pin them down and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't like now. Like he did. Yeah, he feels bad about that, but he's, he, where he lives now, down, down in Corf, he gets to see everything. And it's, the, oh. the butterflies there are quite amazing. Are they? So, yeah, so what, what happens between being a forces wife and then ending up on, on British television? I mean, that's, that's a hell of a leap. <laughs> yeah, that, that was weird. So what, what was the show called? Start from there. So it was called It's Not Easy Being Green. And um, my ex-husband, who was in, in the armed forces, ended up in television, being a television presenter, sort of like on engineering-type mm -hmm. programmes. And so the, the, the BBC, I think he must have been working with or for the BBC, and they were looking, uh, they wanted to make a programme, so this is going back to 2005. Sure. So in 2005 they wanted to make a programme about a family um, who were going to change their lifestyles and um, go from being not very green to greener or green. Okay, so and they didn't approach you because you were green? No, absolutely not. Okay. No, absolutely not. A and we weren't. Um, I was not then. I was being careful and living a fairly low-impact life, but certainly not, not green. So, so we uh, ended up, we were looking to, to go and be, I think from my ex-husband's point of view, um, more sustainable in in a making our own um, generating our own electricity and things like that. Sure. You know, from an engineering. You had like a water mill, I think. Oh, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we went. We we so we we bought uh, this vast, rambling, broken down building in Cornwall. Um, it was a little small holding, about three acres. It was beautiful, and uh, spent the next year uh, doing everything we could 
to change the, the farm, our lifestyles, and it was because there was a television crew involved and a television programme involved, uh -huh. we did a lot more, a lot faster than you would have done in real life. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, I mean, just to dispel a myth, nobody pays for it for you, you know, you do it yourself. But um, And we had we had a camera crew living with us for about a year, and I love them. I, I They are now, Sanna and Johnny and Claire, um, who all worked for the BBC then, mm. have become very good close friends of mine. But it was a, that was an eye-opener, and, and it was the making of the programme, and it went out um, on BBC Two in 2006, mm. and... I wasn't at all prepared or ready for what would happen next and and within 24 hours we had received thousands of emails thousands and they just kept on coming and kept on coming and I set up an internet forum which I, I'd never heard of mm -hmm. internet forums then and I set up an internet forum with um, help um, called It's Not Easy Being Green and loads of people joined it overnight and it's those people it's the people who and I, I, I still have such friends from from those days and they helped me set up the charity sure. which was because a lot of the feedback was oh it's great if you can afford a wind turbine yeah. um, or you're middle class or you've got a small holding and and I just wanted to dispel that myth because it is a myth you know the, the greenest people I know don't have um, much no they have nothing yeah. it's it's rubbish this whole middle class green hippie thing um, so I mean, there is the there is a re-evaluation you you have to place your priorities on different things it's yes. not that you need lots of money to have a garden and to be in the garden often, it's just you need to be in the garden more than you are, say, I know, at the cinema or driving yeah. off on the holiday somewhere or whatever. Like, it's it's about a refocus upon what you want to do and why you want to do it. Yeah. And if you find something that you want to do, then it doesn't. it's not money that's going to stop you doing it. It's just no, willpower. it's not. It's just, I, I think, you know, if you can, do. Mm -hmm. um, and for some people, it, it's impossible for them to, you know, if you're, you're on a, I mean, I'm on a really tight budget at the moment, and... You know, I've I've always I hate the word organic, um, but I do always try and buy food that has not been grown with pesticides, sure. um, and I can't um, always do that at the moment because I, I can't afford it as easily these days. So, is there anything that's changed since when you made it's not easy being green and now? So there's what is that, fourteen years have passed. Is there any kind of organic farming or ethical thinking or green mindedness that you feel has shifted substantially in the last fourteen years? I think, I, I don't know actually if things have shifted, um, I fear not, but awareness is on the up and I think there is more and more pressure on policy makers and mm -hmm. um, sort of corporations to make changes. So so I, I, I see a shift in uh, people's psyches and, and there seem to, seems to be a groundswell or, sure. or maybe it's just because I'm connected to more people, I don't know. Um, but then, you know, we were talking earlier, I, I very, very occasionally catch a train up to London or quite rarely go to a town or a city. And I just see everybody walking around, you know, with armfuls, especially at this time of year, of shopping. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, wow, you know, nothing really has changed. Most people um, are still not aware. Um, most people for the future, the future is the weekend. Something that I, I feel is happening at the moment, and this will be a wonderful segue to start talking about bees in the book, is that there's a lot more nature writing around. And also with COVID, a lot of people have been turning to nature as a first-hand restorative uh, exercise. Is that something that has happened because of COVID, do you think, in the moment? Or do you think something that's just starting to happen? Nature is grabbing onto people. 
I mean, the Wainwright Prize for which you were nominated has been getting huge success year on year, and it just seems the sky's the limit. I think a bit of both, actually. I think so. There is already this this groundswell mm. um, of interest. So in my own experience, we live on this little lane um, on the outskirts of Shaftesbury, mm. and there's a, a road that goes past our little house down to into open country. And when the first lockdown happened, it was like Piccadilly Circus, and and people. I mean, people always walk and run um, and walk their dogs up and down the road, but. This time, it, it, we, we stopped going out during the day. Sure. We started going for our walks in the evening. And because we have a little plant stall outside in the front, which we took off for a while, because we're not quite sure how it would work with COVID, but we put it back on with, please don't touch the plants unless you're buying them. So we got to talk to lots of these people, and it was fantastic to, to, to see the changes and to see what people were learning because they were out walking. And I'm absolutely convinced, well, I know for sure that some of these people who never used to walk up and down here before still do now, even though they're back at work. Mm-hmm. So, so although some have gone back to their busy lives and making ends meet, uh, I think it has made a difference. Well, it has made a difference. Mm. Um, people have survived. Um, people did survive the lockdown because of, of the birds they were seeing in their garden or... Um, or indeed the bees. Or indeed the bees. So where does this fascination with bees begin? Oh, well, so going back to Malvern again, um, after I, um, after my divorce, I, I went to live in Malvern and had a little house on the side of the Malvern Hills um, with a tiny garden, just a little patio and a little strip of um, soil that I grew flowers in. Mm-hmm. And a couple of things, so I was already, I was becoming aware of um, bee decline, because you know the, the the newspapers were full of apocalyptic headlines about about colony collapse disorder, which was affecting honeybees mm-hmm. in in America. So it was all I was thinking, okay, so wow, this is scary. Honeybees are declining. Um, that's going to affect us um, humans and the the food chain. So that was going on, uh, and I I started to campaign about that. And at the same time, I was. Um, spending time in my garden, and two things, there were two separate incidents, both both during a, a sort of a, a one or two week time span. So first of all, at the bottom of the garden, I had a plant called lungwort, mm-hmm. and I noticed a particular bee flying around it that I couldn't identify. I, I thought it was a bumblebee. It's a little black, hairy bee, little buzzy bee with really really long um, proboscis, really long tongue sticking out, and. I learned that it was a hairy-footed flower bee, and that just just the name hairy-footed flower bee made me want to know more about that particular bee. How did you learn what it was? Um, I looked it up. I, I was just book? On uh, the no on the internet. It, there were then no books. I mean, there is now an amazing book, the bees um, field guide to the bees of of Great Britain and Ireland that Stephen Falk has written with, with photographs of every single one of mm-hmm. our bees and gorgeous illustrations too. Uh, but then it was very much a case of uh, looking it up online and I, I, I found it and matched it. Um, and then the behaviour fitted as well with what I read about the behaviour. Sure. So that was kind of my, oh gosh, and it's not a bumblebee or a honeybee, it's another type of bee, it's a solitary bee, sure. what's that? So that sort of sent me off on my finding out more about solitary bees. Um, and, and a, a bit of an obsession for a while in trying to identify them, which I don't have now. And then, shortly afterwards, when I was sitting on the top patio, I was sitting, sitting on a step, 
um, drinking a cup of tea and listening to all the the buzzers and you know bumblebees sort of quite bzzz, deep buzzers mm-hmm. um, and all of a sudden I heard and then there's this, this noise I didn't recognise and it's a bit like a dentist drill um, <laughs> so so I opened my eye well, I, I looked for it and I saw a bee in a, a Welsh poppy I had some yellow poppies there going round and round and round so it's a bumblebee a big bumblebee round and round and round in circles making this funny noise this high pitched noise so again I looked it up I, I, I you know you, you can search anything um, bumblebee making high pitched noise something like that and I discovered that it was buzz foraging and I, I found out then about something um, that's termed buzz pollination or sonication and so this is this is getting onto behaviour now this this was for me mind-blowing this literally blew my mind that mm-hmm. bumblebees um, so this this particular bee was in a, a Welsh poppy but if you take um, a plant like a tomato for instance so you've got the tomato flower and it's got a yellow flower head and you can't see um, any of the the male or the female parts of the the flower they're hidden inside mm-hmm. and what I read and what I learned about is that honeybees wouldn't have a clue what to do with that honeybees do not um, collect pollen or pollinate um, tomato plants only bumblebees and a few solitary bee species um, have mastered the knack and what they do is so the bumblebee flies along making its deep sort of deep buzz sound and then it wraps itself... You're not going to give that to me again, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Of course I am. Then it wraps itself around the the, the flower, disconnects the flight muscles inside its thorax Uh and continues to vibrate them. So it vibrates and vibrates until it reaches, I, I don't know, but something like 400 hertz. And so it's sonicating and at that moment that the flower almost explodes explodes its pollen out onto the body of the bumblebee that's that's clutching onto it and mm-hmm. um, that is how your tomatoes get cross pollinated um, rather than just being self sure, sure. Um, fertilized so that whoa that just yeah that's incredible that that and from that moment I have been verging on obsessed not quite but but absolutely fascinated by the behavior of bees and their relationships one of the things that you describe brilliantly in the book is the way in which pollinators and the plants that they pollinate have a co-evolved together yeah um and that without one you probably wouldn't have the other and if you lose one you will probably lose the other too mm. and in fact there's so many things within the book that a you seem massively fascinated by there are things in the book that I didn't quite realise in quite these terms. Like the, I think the one of the things I loved was you referred to bees as vegetarian wasps, which I thought was great. Yes. Very simple way of describing what a wasp is and what a bee is. Never thought of describing it in those terms before. One of my favourite things, which I didn't even know at all about, was that how bees are using yeast to make their bee bread. Like I hadn't. Oh, that's honeybees. That's amazing. I know yeasts, wild wild yeast. So so that that yeah, that's that's something I learned uh, through writing the book. So when I was writing the book. I didn't want really to write about honeybees, but um, because they were overwritten about. Or yes, you just exactly that. Exactly. I mean, we, we have. You can see in the garden just just at the bottom there. That's a log hide. We have mm. our own honeybees, um, or not our own honeybees. Honeybees just moved in. They arrived one day in a sure. swarm. My um, husband is uh, a natural beekeeper, so honeybees are already written about um, by enough people. So I wanted this book to be about 
wild native bees but my editor who was absolutely wonderful said you can't do this without starting off with honeybees mm. um, so, and that was the most challenging chapter for me because I had to do a lot of research uh, about colony collapse disorder um, you know about honeybee um, problems issues diseases life cycles and it's, it's whilst I was doing that research and speaking to a friend of mine um, who is a, a natural beekeeper and writer called Phil Chandler and he told me about this, he, he, he told me that um, people have probably heard of neonicotinoids, neonicotinoid mm -hmm. um, pesticides, they're insecticides, big problem, big big issue for, for, a, for they're bees. They're in the press at the moment in fact. Uh, again, um, yeah. yeah there's a, there's a is, is it the beet farmers who are trying it, to yeah, secretly the, get yeah, the NFU have asked the beet farmers to um, lobby um, yeah Defra to to have have them reintroduced for next next spring in the sugar beet farms. And once so we're out of Europe, they think we can get all the things know, back. I know that that worries me because I've kind of let just going off on a tangent. I've let let go of the ball of campaigning um, to raise awareness of neonicotinoids, which was an uphill battle for many years. A very few people were worried about them sure. um, and now all of a sudden I think oh my goodness they're back or they're about to come back or the the issue is back but um, so they are a problem and and everybody um, you know there's a lot of focus so much research uh, worldwide um, about the impacts of various of insecticides herbicides whatever on, on bees and what Phil was telling me which is interesting is that uh, it I think it is known that a combination of fungicides and insecticides when the bees um, ingest them or bring the plants that have been treated with them back to to the hive. I'm talking sure. honeybees here. Um, seemed to be um, causing a double whammy. And what Phil was thinking is that the fungicides could be interfering with um, the the process of converting pollen to um, bee bread, which is digestible, and which is what the the worker bees, the nursing bees, feed. The, the larvae mm -hmm. um, and it could be impacting on the part of that process that uses wild yeast it could be killing destroying the fungicides could be destroying the wild yeasts and, and it does make sense so this, this is the kind of thing I found out whilst I was um, sort of researching you know the kind of issues that honeybees um, were dealing with so, so yes yeah, so that helped as well you take you, you take everything for granted. I, I read a lot and I listen a lot, but once somebody sparks you off on a with a little gem like that, yeah. it makes you look at other um, relationships or the other the the toxic um, cocktail that is. The interconnectivity of everything is is amazing. As soon as you pick on one thread, it will take you on a whole journey, yes. whether it be from bees to flowers or from fungus to pesticides, or and then into the political yeah. landscape that we currently face ourselves in. Yeah. Um, one of the loveliest things I think about your book, he says, actually meaning your life, is the bees led you to your your husband to Rob. Oh, I know, I know. It's, it's glorious that like, you talk about oh. how you met whilst you were dowsing, doing some water divination. For... Oh yeah, that was funny. Um, so again, it was um, my friend Phil um, Chandler. He was organising a, a natural beekeeping um, conference or get together, um, and I was the token uh, bumblebee speaker. So I was there to talk. <laughs> I'm imagining you dressed in a giant bumblebee costume. <laughs> Thank goodness I've never had to do that. Um, <laughs> There's always a first time. I would, um, but they didn't have to. So I'd gone along, and I was to speak. I did speak on the. The, the final day in, in the afternoon and it was a whole weekend uh, event 
and I had spotted Rob on the the first evening as all the all, all the attendees were arriving and it was a, in a an outdoor field uh, an outdoor conference um, centre near Worcester so <laughs> I, I was sitting with my friend Leslie chatting literally chatting chatting about how happy I was on my own and how content and okay I was being single and mm -hmm. doing my own thing and I noticed Rob walk past and I you know I clocked him um, and thought yeah he looks interesting and that that was that and then we we um we found ourselves in the same places at the same time mm -hmm. over the space of the weekend How convenient oh no and then there was the time <laughs> i read about it in the book and and I, I i say in the book that i am a little bit embarrassed to admit this but um i joined up for i signed up for the dowsing um workshop which is where there was a guy showing us how if, if you use um dowsing rods you can pretty much um locate the areas that bees would if they could choose does this really but, work oh, i mean yeah. like it's for those that can't see the moment that you're doing it's that the, you've, you've seen it in films of people walking around a field with a couple of sticks and when they cross over there's some underground water like yes how does that work does that work is that real um i believe it is okay. um i kind of would have believed it anyway i'm open to things like that oh, yeah. no scientific um peer-reviewed evidence i guess but um it was very interesting that that when we were doing this, we were in a field, and we were finding this like underground network, this grid system um, of underground, I, they weren't ley lines, something else, I don't know, but waterways or something. Stress lines. Um, stress lines, yeah. maybe they were, and I, I don't know. Um, but you do find water, I found water doing that, and uh, we did come across a wasp's nest, and the, the wasp's nest was, um, the wasp built their nest exactly where the, these rods sort of flip. Sure. And, and converge and and I did yeah I I kind of followed <laughs> I followed Rob <laughs> around the field gosh I can't believe I did that but I did anyway but I didn't even know his name and it was sure. and I did something even worse on, on the final day so when I did my talk on Sunday um, I was I had moved back down to Cornwall and I was trying to make a go of um, my ex-marital home the, the, the farm mm -hmm. I'd, I'd called it, renamed it Bumblebee Farm, and I wanted to turn it into the most amazing centre for biodiversity and, and learning. And I needed volunteers, so I did my Bumblebee talk and then said at the end, and if anybody else, anybody here would like to come and volunteer, I'm always looking for volunteers. Um, and I, 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 I looked a little bit too long at Rob. And uh, then afterwards, I still hadn't been introduced, and I was going to go, it's time for me to go. And I saw him talking with some people who I knew a little bit. So... I went over to say goodbye to these people who I probably wouldn't have mm -hmm. um, normally. I didn't know them well enough to say goodbye. And they did introduce me um, to Rob and and, um, and he said, I'll come and volunteer if you'd like. And I was so cool about it. And <laughs> I, I, I could have, you know, everything in me wanted to say, great, here's my phone number. And I didn't. I said, okay, you can find my email um, oh, you started out. I can't out. believe I did that. Oh, I've got a blog. You can um, go and check you it out. You can find my like. email number because I didn't want to, in front of everybody, be ridiculously over the top keen. And then um, he tells me I, I discovered since that he drove back, he came back to Dorset because he lives, he was from Shaftesbury here, which is mm -hmm. why, kind of why I'm in Shaftesbury now. And he came back here with his friend. And uh, his friend, I think they, they needed to look something up. I, I don't and, and they, so his friend opened Rob's iPad and Rob had been looking up 
me, the speaker, mm-hmm. um, on his iPad. So, so he got he got a hard time from his friend Gilly um, about that. And he did ring me. He took he took his time, not because he's cool. He doesn't play cool. Um, when he had time, he rang me, or emailed me, and and arranged to to ring me one evening. And I, I was like a, a schoolgirl waiting for the phone call. <laughs> and wondering why he hadn't rung by nine o'clock and so so he did come down to volunteer he came down and did some gardening because he's a gardener mm-hmm. um and uh we 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 got together and the rest yeah is history. the rest is history and i would never have met him had it not been for for both of our love of, um, bees. of bees so other than finding true love what is the greatest thing do you think or, or a couple of greatest things that you have manifested for the greater good as a result of your awakening to a green agenda through the television show, through to having written a book that came out best part of a year ago now. What is your greatest achievement? That's a much quicker way. Of wow! I, so I haven't. I never really think in terms of achievement, and and I'm talking. I'm not interested in my own personal achievement. But so, okay, because of the television show, which um, I hated. I, I hated every minute of it afterwards mm-hmm. um, I I was able to open a few doors in those early days that I might not have been able to open had I not been able to ring people up and say hello my name's Bridget Strawbridge from BBC Two it's mm-hmm. Peace Being Green so so for a little while um, I realized I understood I could see that I had this horrible word platform I had a platform and I could use it um, for good and I decided that's what I'd do. I had to make some sense out of what was for me the horror. Yeah, you went through a year of turmoil and the aftermath. Yeah. How can you best turn that to the greater good? Um, so I had that, that, that sort of the, the, the open door and I had a, a passion. I knew what I wanted to do. I've, I've never been so focused in my whole life mm-hmm. as I have been for the last 10 years. And I had, because of the charity, the trustees of the charity, insisted that I set up a Twitter account um, and a Facebook account and and I did reluctantly and I have found that a combination of that that early break you know the the, the TV program and um, being involved or having a Twitter account from the very early days and building it up has brought me to today when when I, I interact with thousands of people mm-hmm. and I am able to pass on to them all of these people mostly through Twitter but more recently through the book which again has been possibly more successful because of the social media yep. thing I think that's a given these days one is the plant one is the pollinator yeah yeah probably. that's a nice way of looking at it because I don't like the actual reality of that mm. um, but it, it's there so so I'm now able to to pass on um, much of, of what I've learned and and also some of my insights to people like me um, and, and more importantly to people like the person I used to be, mm-hmm. to people who are just um, thinking, well, I didn't know there were that many bees in the world or, or oh, I didn't know that um, you needed more than honeybees to pollinate. So, so that's, yeah, it's given me an opportunity which I feel every day. I feel very grateful for that. Do you often? Do you ever feel exposed by the more negative side of social media? I mean, in environmental terms, I am aware of environmentalists coming up against farmers who, in their own way, may think that they're trying to do something good. They might be trying to activate green policies that have to happen slightly slower than environmentalists might want it to happen. 
I mean, there's the truth is our our biodiversical world is so complicated and interwoven, and we are a part of it in so many different ways that you can't change things quickly anyway. Whereas social media often demands things now. Yeah. Like, do, have you found yourself on the either the the, <clears throat> the the bad back end of that and the backlash of that? Have you accidentally exacerbated situations? Yeah, I have, um, I, and I. And I, I'm not, I'm somebody who, who avoids conflict at all costs, I always have. Um, so every time I go into battle over, say, the neonicotinoid issue, which I did for many, many years, mm -hmm. and came up against um, brick walls or, or, or farmers who, who would say, without these pesticides our crops will fail, I, I found that very, very difficult to deal with because I, I can't give them a quick fix, I can't tell them what they should do mm -hmm. instead other than to very, very slowly um, sort of use less and, and use more natural um, organic ways of growing. But I, I've been vilified um, and I've run away from social media on a number of occasions um, and I'm not, I'm ill-equipped to deal with that. I'm very, I'm not thick-skinned. Sure. Um, people, people often um, help by fighting some of my battles for me or coming to my defence. Um, but what I don't do now is I don't go, go into battle if I don't have the tools and um, something to back up what I'm saying. Sure. I've also learnt right up till just yesterday um, when I was looking deeper into a subject on social media and following various threads like you do. So nothing to do with bees but to do with feeding birds in the back garden which is something I do. I see these these two huge sort of conflicting um, ways of doing this and mm -hmm. And people, and it depends on and who you are. And they are. What, what well, they, they are so. So it's people like me who feed the birds because otherwise they might starve. You mm -hmm. know, little garden birds need to be fed. But then there's the there's the big issue of um, if you are feeding the birds, you need to keep the feeders clean. Otherwise, um, you're spreading disease. And lots of people don't know that. So so that's something I've just been trying to raise awareness of recently. And then only yesterday, um, I read something about how if you feed garden birds and birds like blue tits, uh, which are not shy, um, come in in, their, in large numbers, they then feed well on your feeders, whereas there are birds um, like willow tits, um, which are increasingly rare, mm -hmm. that are too shy to come into the garden. So then the blue tits um, are feeding... Um, they're getting an artificial they, they, they are, they're being artificially fed. Uh, and then when they go back out into similar habitats, they there are more of them and they are more able to take the nesting sites that the willow tits. So, so this, uh, not really answering your question. No, um, you are entirely. But this is something um, that I watch and learn from. And there are times when I think, oh my gosh, I don't know what to think anymore um, or what to say or what to do or what to suggest to, to people who ask questions because nothing is simple when, when you start to try and make a difference yeah. and help wildlife the whole rewilding thing none of it is simple there are so many there are aspects. trends there are trends and, and trends that i have certainly found in interviewing a whole host of different kinds of people whether they be farmers or rewilding specialists you find that everyone's trying to do the right thing mm. in some instances the farmers who want the neonicotinoids are trying to do the right thing by supporting a population and aren't getting enough money for doing that but there has to be a way to appease all camps to an extent mm. 
but it's incredibly hard. And when you sometimes think you're doing the right thing it, and it turns out it's the wrong thing, there is nothing worse. It's awful. I always, uh, if, if I do discover I'm, um, if, if I think mm-hmm. I'm actually wrong, or if I've made a mistake, you know, in the past I might have um, deleted the tweet. Sure. I now retweet it and say I was mistaken or oops or I've just learned something else um you're fact checking yourself <laughs> y- yeah there was it's a... the catholic in me I have to be <laughs> honest it's terrible <laughs> there was a lovely reference in your book uh which was talking about how people are very keen to now buy um uh, pollinator friendly plants from garden centers which is glorious everyone wants to have bee friendly things they want to shove seeds there whatever they want to do everything but they're failing to realize that some of these plants are grown using pesticides in themselves and you suddenly go well what's the point are you doing it from a marketing angle are you doing it for a biodiversity biodiversity angle because mm. sort of defeats the point um okay big question what's your favorite bee okay so it is one of the snail shell bees <laughs> i love the snail shell bees so so the red-tailed mason bee osmia bicolor and uh when i wrote my book and i was writing about solitary bees i committed um sort of to to the page that this is my favourite bee in the world and my editor Robin said are you sure Mm -hmm. you want to put this down in writing Um, and I thought about it and I thought yes there is never going to be a bee that I am going to be more in love with for her behaviour than this particular bee. And so these are bees that make their nests in old snail shells. Yeah. I mean that's really cute. Oh it's there are three of them three um, species in this country it's just gorgeous and um, each one of them has a different way of sort of you know one of them doesn't turn the snail shell upside down some of them cover it in like chewed up plant material that looks like pesto Um, (laughs) but this particular one the 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 red-tailed mason bee when she's finished doing all of her um, collecting pollen laying her eggs blocking up the shell with loads of debris and little bits of whatever's lying around. She then um, spends, she goes backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards up to a hundred times collecting little pieces of dried grass and she flies back carrying these, these, these pieces and literally looks like a little, a little bee on a broomstick hmm. and she thatches the shell so, so she lays them all on top of the shell, and by the time she's finished, and I've seen this, I, I went, I met um, Sir John Walters, um, who illustrated my book, who is he's he's a serious, amazing naturalist. You know, he's he's kind of just incredible, and I met him um, at um, where where the the Sir Abbas giant mm-hmm. is, because there's a little field to one side of where the giant is fenced off. What he's done is he's he's um, kind of scattered some extra empty um, brown banded snail shells there so I was able to see the the thatched shells for myself and you would never never have guessed that there was a snail shell and of course n- not many people would know that there might be bees inside the snail baby shells. bees um, baby bees I never people think of bees term. in a Winnie the Pooh oh. shaped like hive that hangs from a tree Always. for bears and they don't yeah. think that they're buried underground yeah. or they're making little nests inside the mortar of walls or they're in a snail shell. I know. That's just one bee out of 20,000 living bees, you know, that's one bee, one bee's behaviour. So you imagine why the whole world of bees is so fascinating. Um, if there's one thing that people can do to support bees, what is that? Well, there isn't just one should thing. They? Um, should they? So, so um, it's, it's creating or leaving habitat for them. 
stop using pesticides. You know, I used to say reduce your use of pesticides, but, but if you could stop, that's, of course, far, far better. Um, and plant throughout the year. Because of climate change, we've now got bees flying, um, you know, through... Um, November, December, mm. January, February. You mentioned that we've got bumblebees going 365 days a year at the moment because the winters aren't cold enough to kill them off and they yeah. keep laying eggs throughout the season. Well, they think that they, it's, they, they've got these mixed cues coming, you know, when the weather's warm rather mm. than... Well, you can um, see it in the roses at the moment. We've got roses out in our garden and it's December and we're completely yeah. confused by that. And you've got... it's Again, because of Twitter, I read a piece of research that I think has only been published this week. Um, I'm just halfway through reading it on the laptop upstairs at the moment. And um, it's possible, so somebody, a, a PhD student has just published um, um, work on this, it's possible that because a, a, a European variant of the buff-tail bumblebee, Bombus terrestris, has been brought into this country over the last 20 years to pollinate our polytunnels and greenhouses, mm -hmm. uh, tomatoes, going back to the buzz pollination thing earlier, and many of them have... Um, escaped into the wild and it's possible that possible that that variant of the buff-tailed bumblebee which is used um, to in southern Europe I forget the scientific name but basically instead of going into hibernation at the end of the life cycle the the new um, the new queens start another nest mm -hmm. so maybe that is why this has happened in the last 20 years in the United Kingdom and or the, com the combination of that and climate change. Sure. Um, but yeah, there are lots of winter flying bees. So back to your question, we now need to be planting, um, thinking about, so what flowers now? And, and Mahonia, um, Mahonia flowers now, and winter flowering, honeysuckle and heathers. Um, so basically have a look and see what, what, what flowers and winter copes flowers. with the frost as well. Sure. And plant it in your garden. Great. So there are three questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Mm -hmm. um, the first question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? It would be the Malvern Hills. Okay. I thought I'd got that out of my system. <laughs> yeah, it would be the Malverns. Why? I love them. They, they, um, they see I'm welling up. because they <laughs> <laughs> I am. Okay, get the welling up out of my system. Because um, I, they open, yeah, the hills opened my eyes. Something about the hills brought me back to the natural world and I, and I feel so connected um, to those hills and and I feel completely, I feel hidden and invisible on them mm -hmm. um, and I just love them and I know them because I lived there for the longest period of time of anywhere I've lived. So yeah, that's why it would be. The epilogue of your book takes you back there, you go for a walk there, am I right? So. Yes, I do. Is there, is there something strange in the fact that when you were shooting the TV series you didn't like it because of the exposure that you got from that full year of televisual uh, abuse, for want of a better word? Do you, how do you find it different now having written a book that is incredibly personal and talks about yourself? Is it just, it, are you controlling the voice so it's on your terms now? Exactly that, and I chose in my book um, what to include and what to leave out and although it, it is I mean one of the you know I mentioned the breakdown of my marriage but I don't go into any details because it's mm -hmm. irrelevant nobody needs to know that and I also wrote a very hard chapter because whilst I was writing the book my mother died and it, it was incredibly hard and I decided to include that because I felt it was relevant because I wanted to show people um, what how important the natural world is for somebody towards the end of their life as well, not just 
us. You buy know. her a bird feeder. She was suffering from yeah. dementia. Mm. Yeah, she had she had lung disease and she was in a nursing home and she she had mild dementia, and we put bird feeding um, station outside her window and. I cannot tell you the joy it brought to her um, during her final months and right up to, you know, her final few days having the birds visit. It um, when she'd stopped watching television, she stopped reading. Um, she wasn't able to answer the phone anymore, but the birds still sort of lifted her. Is there a wonderful section you write about how she calls you every sort of four minutes to ah, tell you the birds come back? God, that was a nightmare because again. she already <laughs> was calling me all the time and, and, and I was thinking, oh, get, get her the bird feeder and that'll, um, that'll leave her happy. And she just called me constantly to tell me what was there mm. <laughs> and asked me what it was and describe it. And um, yeah, it was lovely. Uh, and it, it also, do you know, oh, do you know what? I haven't thought this either. Ah. It, it gave us something that we were both connected to um, because we never had the same interests. I had nothing really that um, we could share. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a shared love. Uh, and it was, it was really lovely and it was kind of... Oh, it, it, was, it was... I Yeah, I fell in love with my mother during the last few days, having never really been known how to be around her mm-hmm. um, the last few months, sorry. So yeah, the bird feeder really did that as well. I haven't, again, hadn't thought about that before. So the bees gave you love for your husband and the birds gave you love for your mother? Yeah, yeah, actually, yes, yeah. We don't have time to get onto the four-legged mustelids, but I wonder what they'll bring you. <laughs> um, second question. Actually, there's something I want to say. So the, the great thing about birds that I've seen, I was up in the Galloway Forest about, about a year ago now and I was sitting in the cafe and it was pretty grisly outside and there was only two other people in the cafe and there was a father who must have been about my age and a son who must have been about five and they had stuck on the window a little perspex bird chart of four or five different birds that might come to sit and feed at this feeder that was just outside the window and the kid was there with his palms pressed up against the, the window leaving sort of squelchy buttery scone marks on the glass but sort of spotting the nuthatch as that comes in and then a tit came in and learning about them and watching the father and son bond was something that I thought about when reading about you and your mother having those moments at the end of life and there's something absolutely beautiful about people at the beginning of their life and at the end of the life mm-hmm. finding solace and comfort and beauty in nature mm-hmm. and I mean if there's anything that people take from your book I think that's that's mm-hmm. that's the central message or at least that's what I took away oh I'm glad because that's kind of the message that I would like to think people would take away good well I win then thank you <laughs> yay um second question um who is your natural history hero John Walters I don't have to think Great. Tell me about him. Oh, so he illustrated my book. I wa- from the from the moment I knew I wanted to write a book, which first of all was going to be about bee decline, and as it evolved and all these other creatures jumped in, um, I thought I want this book to be illustrated, and I want it to be John. So John, um, John lives on Dartmoor, and um, he's not just a naturalist. Um, he he is um, he's an educator, and he's a wildlife artist. He's a he, he paints the most gorgeous watercolour um, paintings in the field and he knows his subjects. He paints about, he paints insects and birds, so many different insects uh, and plants. And his knowledge, I, I, I don't know. How did know you first come up with that question? Uh, this, again, I met him through Phil Chandler, um, honeybee guy, mm-hmm. had invited me to talk at something that he had um, arranged and John was there talking as well 
as was Kate Bradbury. I don't know if you know Kate. Mm -hmm. she, she's written some uh, beautiful book called The Bumblebee Flies Anyway and Wildlife Gardening. So um, I met John there because he was, um, he was doing, he had a stall where he, it was full of the most extraordinary, exciting creatures and um, that children were coming and looking and he was explaining to the children what he had and um, talking about the, the life cycles and I listened and listened and learned a lot then and I was fascinated by his attention to detail um, that sort of the minutiae and he, he he knows things not through reading books mm -hmm. or learning about them um, uh, uh, you know on a course he knows what he knows because he is a field naturalist he is old school and I don't I, I'm sure there are many many other people like him out there but the other thing that I love um, about John is that he ha and anyone who knows him will say this um, he has no ego sure. um, he's gentle he's self-effacing um, and he's generous with his knowledge I, I follow him on Twitter obviously as well and his Twitter account is by far one of the most um, informative and beautiful so yeah it's it's John Walters we'll put it on the website it, do you, it, something that's become clear to me through talking to you is that you talked about it at school where it was the reintegration to a human society that shut you off from the natural world and then through the divorce coming through that released you back into the natural world and when we talk about nature now as you just have been you talk about it side by side with the community of people that goes through it I mean it's obvious that that's hugely important to you do you think you could enjoy the natural world just on your own without that community or do you think it's enriched by being able to explore it with these other people? So yes I could and do enjoy it without people but they do enrich it and and I um, I love the shared experience I um, I often wonder so so I think a lot of us do this you know we go for a walk and uh, do we take our camera or not mm -hmm. um, and if we do take our camera and if we do take photographs um, why are we taking them you know for, for our own um, interest or to share on social media and, and I put my hand up and say that I love sharing photographs of something firstly just because I've seen it and it, it's beautiful and, and I want to say look what was in the, the field behind our house but secondly because um, this beautiful generous community and it is people who who love nature who love um, sort of the natural world and wildlife tend to, to be generous with their time and their their knowledge and I love that social media if I post a photograph of anything whether it is um, a, a blotch on a wall mm -hmm. you know or, or, or a leaf or um, whether it's something that I think might be an egg a butterfly egg but turns out not to be somebody out there will help me by identifying it and better still they'll tell me something about it sure so yeah, I, I love the, the connection The interconnectivity of community and the natural world. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, final question. Um, if you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? Oh, it'd be the dodo. <laughs> Do you know why it'd be the dodo? Why would it be oh, the dodo? Oh God, it would be the dodo. Um, because I remember crying, crying, crying when I was about four years old, four, five years old. And my mother must have um, read me a book about the dodo and I understood 
by, I, I can picture, and I, I probably am picturing more modern books, but I can picture this picture of this extraordinary creature. And I knew then that we had wiped it out, that man, humankind, had wiped this bird out. Mm -hmm. um, and still to this day, I, I, I remember thinking then and throughout my childhood, um, I wanted to be, I, I still feel sure there must be a dodo left or a pair and I'd, I'd, I'd love someone to find them and, and just prove to me that they haven't been wiped off the face of the earth. Um, so I bring the dodo back. Well Bridget, for you today here, just waiting outside <laughs> is, is Mr and Mrs Dodo. Uh, um, that's it, thank you very much. Wow. I have no further questions, um, or at least no further questions that I'm going to ask whilst the tapes Gosh, running but well, um, thank you very much for coming on the trees of crown well thank you thank you so much for inviting me and for asking such incredible questions A huge thank you to Bridget, especially for her patience in waiting for me to release this episode almost a year later than planned. We're back to our usual trees on Tuesday. It's the time of the colourful dogwood, blood red, and with the power to bring rats back from the dead. Maybe they can help Bridget with her dodos. Anyway, we look forward to seeing you then. Thank you again for listening, and bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy